0: Welcome back to Global Nomad Hacks. Wow, what a year it's been. I can't believe we are actually on our first anniversary and we launched this show about global nomads being global citizens and living a life that really embraces the world community and being part of it on so many different levels during a pandemic when no one could travel. And we've had an incredible year. We've covered everything From identity theft and cybersecurity to resilience in divorce as a divorce love refugee, binational marriages, e-commerce, and looking at different opportunities as digital nomads, different types of travel personalities and how you can be traveling with someone and picking your ideal travel partner, looking at different ways that you can do this, looking at the insurance that is required and how we can attain that, looking at how to thrive and how to avoid extremism and not take part in that, but also to contribute to the neutrality of it. Learning everything in so many different angles. And we've had such wonderful guests from Mark Philpot and Dr. Ann Kabaka to Farah Pandith and Christine Engvig with the Women's International Network, we talked to Anita busik about green cards for extraordinary abilities, lots of different coaches that work with digital nomads and work with global nomads and expats from across the globe, not just from the American perspective, but really a wonderful mix. We had Robert Carbo, an old and dear friend who was a third culture kid, Liberian Swede who is a tennis master, who had the most wonderful story of growing up in Liberia and Sweden, and then coming to the U.S. to go to school and work and eventually marrying an American. Just so many wonderful different stories about how we learn to thrive in this changing world and the different things that we can do to make that happen and happen beautifully and ways that we can really embrace our ability to be global citizens and to connect with other global citizens. We've also curated this incredible list of different products and services and stories and people and books and everything around the Global Nomad Hacks community and opened up a section for people to really understand where they can find these resources. So, not just the interviews that we've done, but also some of the resources we've come across as Global Nomads ourselves. So, we found a great way to share these with you and I hope you'll all go check out the Global Nomad Hacks hack space. It's really about power resources for people that really aspire to be global nomads. Just so many wonderful things, and I just feel so blessed to have been part of this incredible year with all of you and look forward to sharing more as we move forward. And to celebrate that and to celebrate our one-year anniversary. This episode is really going to be a compilation of some of our favorites and some of the little things that we've come across on the way on this last year's journey and celebrating the slow opening of return to travel and return to connection and opening of borders for love refugees, connecting people and families again. So I just want to say thank you all for being loyal listeners. I hope you'll share this podcast with others who aspire to be global nomads or who are already global nomads, because I think there's some really great resources that we can all benefit from. It is my honor and my pleasure to share with you some of the highlights from the past year and look forward to an incredible upcoming year with you as well. Enjoy and have a nice journey wherever that might take you. So, where are your plans next? So, when you can set sail, where do you think you'll go?
1: Well, the next plans involve a boat, but not this one I'm on today. So, we're actually Oscar and I are going to be heading to the United States of America to take on another maritime adventure. And this one is called the Great Loop. Have you heard of the Great Loop? No. Okay. Tell me. And many many of your listeners won't know about it as well, so it's probably best that I, I define what it is. Please. So, the Great Loop is a, well, it seems to be a secret, but a lot of people are finding out about it. (laughs)
0: Not (laughs) anymore.
1: So the Great Loop is an amazing um, waterway adventure that you can take in the United States and Canada, basically, which goes from Florida in the south of the United States on the eastern seaboard. You can travel up through the intracoastal waterways as far as New York City and up the Hudson River into the Erie Canal system Mm -hmm. and then into the Great Lakes and then down the Mississippi River into the Gulf of Mexico and back to Florida, and that's called the Great Loop. Wow. And it's a 6,000 nautical mile adventure that you can do in a boat, and you need a specific type of boat to do it because there's lots of locks and canals and things that you have to go through. So I've had this on my bucket list for a number of years now, but I, I only wanted to do it as a philanthropic project. So what I've done is I've, I've been working for the last two years to set up a project whereby we take 18 to 21-year-old people from all over the world who are struggling at the moment a little bit off the tracks they might not be really finding their sweet spot in life and we give them specific time on the boat and i'm going to bring mentors and and buddies from all over the world who are skilled in specific areas to pass on their skill sets to these young people so we're going to be doing everything from filmmaking to podcasting to musicians to chefs you name it, there's going to be these um, programs on board the boat as we go around the Great Loop. So it's going to be a two to three year project. And we're going to invite young people who, as I say, they may be disadvantaged in some way, they may be struggling in life or just not knowing what it is they want to do. And they want to learn some life skills, but also some technical skills to go with that. We're going to marry them up with people that are phenomenal in their field, who can do that with us along the boat journey. So It's going to be an incredible maritime adventure. We're going to get to see all these towns and cities along the way. We're making a TV series out of it. So lots of people around the world are going to be able to get to see it. But we're also hopefully going to change a lot of people's lives along the way as well, which is really the the whole purpose of it.
0: That sounds amazing. Well, you'll have to keep us posted because we'll definitely share that with our audience. It sounds like a really cool trip and just a great mission. I love the idea of it. Having two... uh, Young adults in that age group right now, I can say that, particularly with the current world situation with the pandemic, even those that thought they knew what they wanted to do are a little bit up in the air and sort of saying, Well, maybe that wasn't such a good plan after all. What's the world going to be like? What do I need? You know, what skill sets do I need? Is college the way to go? Even they're all looking at sort of different paths. My son, who is 18, almost 19. Has taken an alternative path as well. He said, "Nuts to college. I don't believe in it." He may go back eventually, but at this point in his life, he feels like he can learn more from working and just living life. And he's doing yeah. a great job at it. I might add, Wonderful. he's doing—you know—he's doing just fine. So I think I'm not too worried about him. But I do think that they're—you know—having opportunities to do something like that, where you can match up mentors and and help guide some of the youth. And I'm sure that the mentors will learn a lot from these kids too. Which is a pretty amazing thing. I find that the stages in my life where I've done teaching, whether it's for younger students or even with co- in the corporate environment, I learn more as a teacher than I feel like the students. And that's not to say that I'm a bad teacher, because they do say that I'm a good teacher. But it's more that you learn so much from the teaching process from your students. And so I think it sounds like a wonderful program for win-win for everybody, and mm. uh, also beautiful trip. I'm kind of
1: jealous. (laughs) (laughs) Come and join us.
0: I would love to. Yeah, bring me in as a digital well being expert. I would love to talk to those kids and go for a little sale. Yeah, sounds very cool. What are some of the things that you used on your journey to be able to make sure that those needs were covered?
2: Yeah, well, definitely like understanding, first of all, with my child with attention deficit, that, you know, what we, right, food is medicine. Food is medicine. It can also be poison. And so cutting out dairy, cutting out gluten, cutting out caffeine and sugars, that is huge. And especially when the common classroom will have a box of candy on the desk, you know, and those are the challenges that were some of the challenges that we faced. And again, as my eyes opened, I'm conventionally chained. I was like, talk to my dear friend the psychiatrist and had her evaluate my daughter. ADHD was the diagnosis. Here, try some Adderall. Like, is there anything else? I mean, and that's what I tried. And it just shifted her personality to like, you know, just a shell of herself. And we did that for a couple of days. And it was like, uh-uh, nope, this isn't going to work. And that drove me into you know, working in functional medicine and doing the omega-3 fatty acids, doing organic acid testing, actually understanding her mitochondrial function and her cellular needs and what are those B vitamins that she needs, the methylators that she needs, and making sure that we, it's not so much as how much we give, but how much we can remove. So removing the sugars, removing the caffeine. In Georgia, we're sweet tea people, mm-hmm. right? Stopping the sweet tea, yeah. you know, something as simple as that. Can be huge stopping the cereal for breakfast. And that's something else, Heidi. And I think this is so great when we get to experience different cultures around the world. One of my youngest, she had recurrent on the medical side of things. She had recurrent ear infections, sinus infections, as had I as a child, but we started and she was on the verge of getting her adenoids out. And so surgical procedure for this chronic sinus infections and allergies. And so as we traveled around the world, she didn't have a single one. She didn't have a single infection. And we came back within a week. She had another sinus infection. That was like, whoa, here I am, Dr. Mom. Like, what did we do different? Well, all of a sudden, she's eating cereal for breakfast again. We didn't have that anywhere else in the world, with the exception of Australia, for a short time and very rarely because the part of homeschooling, what foods, what can you make? You know, Let's mm-hmm. come up with some native recipes. What does that look like? And that fresh food on a daily basis, basically, was more of our, and cooking out, Aussies like to cook out. And the other thing too, and even in Indonesia, where we stayed in a small village in northern Indonesia, where there's the black volcanic sand, you're like the only, you know, certainly the only Americans, everyone thought we were Germans, we were the only like non-native people there. And there was a school nearby that girls would here these students at the school and at this time, they're definitely eating healthy. They're having their tropical smoothies in the morning. They have coconuts. You know, they see the people go climbing up the tree to get the coconuts and the, they made friends with these neighborhood Indonesian girls that didn't speak a word of English, but yet they played every day together I and shared, you know, what they ate, what they did, and somehow they communicated in really beautiful ways. So that's the beauty of the international travel and the immersion aspect that we don't get as tourists.
0: Yeah, well, and I think uh, kids are so amazingly fluid with that. they just they just fall right into it that there is no language requirement. it's just go in and play. And I think as adults we sort of forget that. and I think the people that enjoy travel, like our guests that uh, that are with us today, that is something that, you know, it, for us, it brings out that play and it lets us be the learner again. It lets us be, you know, in an unfamiliar territory and, and be okay with that. There's something really beautiful about that. You had mentioned earlier in the green room that you've got a new book coming out. And to circle back a little bit on the question that I asked earlier about getting access to the resources that you need in order to take good care of yourself. And if I understand it correctly, in particular, you're talking about as you're a gynecologist working with women who are going through menopause. And I think a lot of us out there, that is something that's treated very differently in different countries. And so access to things can be challenging. Can you talk a little bit about share a little bit about your book, but also how that applying it may be different across different countries.
2: Yeah, thank you. So actually, many of the concepts that are in my book are from my worldwide journey, you know, that really seeded into me that took me from a state of infertility and early menopause at 39, till to fertile at 41. And that whole journey was seeded in me. And because I grew up with an international household, a wide variety of foods, so with Keto Green 16, my new book coming out, I chose 16 foods that pretty much anywhere you are, you can access. And there's a choice, 16 food types. So for example, if you don't have, like there's one fruit option, digestive fruit, either mango, pineapple, or papaya. So pretty much around the world, we can get one of those, right? And if not, maybe kiwi in Australia would be a good substitute. So thinking about along the lines of the of the family of foods it's accessible and we're not looking for boxed anything we're not looking for canned anything in this program so you know there's certainly options if we're struggling to use canned and boxed whatever we need frozen etc but around the world i think one of the beautiful things that we see around the world is access to fresh foods i mean even now in italy In this crisis, fresh foods are still available. And that is so powerful. Something that is fresh, not canned, not stored, not potentially contaminated is, I think, uh, the best option. And especially as we go as for medical help, especially in the perimenopausal time period, where I, I say between age 35 and 55 is a period of neuroendocrine vulnerability. So it's crucially important that we get our hormones balanced during this time as naturally as possible and I will have to say that you know all of the other regions in the world that I went to women over 50 are less medicated than they are in the US. In oh, the yeah. US we are hyper medicated and that leads to polypharma and there's no studies looking at polypharma in anyone, right? And so that's where it can really affect our immune system, etc. So and we're the most obese nation in the world. So you know that's a critical finding and as I worked with different cultures around the world and how they handle, you know, menopause, perimenopause, certainly a big advocate for bioidentical hormones, you know, especially bioidentical progesterone. And I created natural solutions for women with that in mind, making it accessible and the safety profiles of it. And it's around the world, the same thing. It's often, for example, and when we lived in Munich in Germany for a while, I had just found out I was pregnant and I couldn't sleep. The first prescription was magnesium, mm-hmm. and I think that holistic natural approach is more readily is more readily available. And we do need to be aware of that. There are many things we can do, and that's why Keto Green 16 is so powerful to create hormone balance through becoming more insulin sensitive and managing cortisol stress, as well as increasing our most powerful hormone in our body, the hormone of love, bonding, and connection. Oxytocin, mm-hmm. and so that's kind of that holistic point where I always tell clients it takes more than hormones to fix our hormones. And so, with that right attitude, right lifestyle, good night's sleep—I mean, that's where we are, ninety to one hundred percent there.
0: So, in terms of portability, as a as a pro athlete, what does that mean for? So, say you want to be, you know, nomadic and go, you know, teach whatever your sport is. In your case, it's tennis, and you want to go. Teach in Switzerland, for example, which they probably have their own guidelines. How portable is the? Uh, are the standards that you carry with you? Is it like a nursing degree that you have to start over from scratch and take all the new exams in order to actually do your job?
3: No, the I, So, so the ITF, whatever the ITF certification, uh, it applies to the other countries, but the uh, the host country is the one that actually goes through the training and certification. But it is definitely transferable. And something like the PTR that has members and has a footprint in Switzerland, you could go there and say that I'm a PTR certified professional, and that certification would definitely cover everything. And even the US PTA has done a good job also in terms of its education and all the other things so that. If you were to go to Switzerland and say, I'm a USPTA tennis bro or a PTR tennis bro, uh, you shouldn't really have that much problem. The country that would probably be the most difficult one would probably be France. France, they are very much into just their own certification and their own internal development. So usually French players work with French coaches and there's a whole culture, there's the way how this, the uh, grassroot level of tennis works in Switzerland.
0: Is the it's, technique sorry, any in, different in France? Yeah. Is the technique any different sorry. or it's really more the teaching? No, no, no,
3: no, 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 It's just, it's just how the grassroot level works. So for instance, in the U S the way, how you generally do things would be through the college system. So the U S is big on the college system mm-hmm. and the French organizations are, are stronger in, through the club organizations and also in Germany. So you have big club organizations that play. But in the U.S., many in today's society, in today's open market, you have you know, many, many foreign kids who come into the U.S. and go through the U.S. college system, which is fantastic. It's, the, it's, it's probably the greatest development play for, for anyone you know, who wants to become a, a serious tennis player going through college and, and getting a college degree and, and getting the experience of hitting with these players. College is absolutely a fantastic way to, to develop and get into the next level.
0: Very cool. One of the things that you you mentioned and you've been talking about, we've been talking about over the last couple of years since we reconnected was the use of technology in teaching and in sort of understanding the dynamics of, of tennis and so you had talked a little bit about doing some remote, some virtual programs as well as doing in person. What are some of the things that you can only do sort of remotely? And what are some of the things that, you know, you have to, you have to be there live in person to achieve?
3: So one of the wonderful things, there is a, there are a few of these apps that are available, you know, video apps that are available that offer side to side viewing and so on, slow motion video capturing and so on that are fantastic. In my case, when I videotape a student, I've done this for so long, it's generally not for me, it's more for my student. And it really helps my student see what's actually happening. So I can tell a student, you know, you are moving your arm in a specific way and they say no absolutely not and you say well i see it and they're like no 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 i'm, I'm definitely doing it this way so the video then can show them what they're doing so mm-hmm. i use video for technical analysis and what i would generally do is i will slow the video down there is a, a few different companies that are out there one of them being Coach's Eye, and the other one being huddle technology and I use the coach's eye, and I videotape someone, and usually I do it at a 90-degree angle if I'm working specifically on a technical thing, and they hit the ball, and I can bring it into slow motion, and I can stop at contact point. The wonderful thing about you know these particular programs is I can take a professional tennis player, or I can take someone who does it well, and I can do a side-by-side comparison and they actually are swinging at the same pace. So then the player can actually see where the contact point is and they can see where they where the breakdown in the technology, breakdown in terms, not technology, in terms of their stroke, so the technical part of their stroke, they can actually see where the error or where the breakdown happens. And that's a side-to-side thing. So that's a wonderful thing. And, you know, you can take a video on your iPhone and you can send it to me and I can convert that into a coach's eye video or something and make a side-to-side comparison and then i can send it back to my student the other thing that you can do is you can go ahead and you can videotape someone playing a match and you can do what is called tagging which means that as the player is playing every single mistake they make you can document it and then you can say oh well you lost this match because you were you know every single backhand you hit you missed And then you can say, well, the player thinks that I'm losing because I'm messing around my forehand, but you can actually document and say, okay, well, problem is you're missing too many backhands because in the heat of the battle, you don't really know what's going on. So having this type of technology is absolutely godsend. And tennis is a little bit unfortunate. We're a little bit slow with regards to the technology. We're catching up. Other sports are, you know, football, baseball, you know, many of these big American sports, the technology is there and and it's coming and it's really helping both the the player and the student. So it's it's great stuff and I use it and I firmly believe in it.
0: That sounds great. Do you foresee doing any work with VR where you can, or even AR where you can actually play with people remotely maybe by setting them up with sensors so that they can have a simulated environment or does that feel too out there
3: No, absolutely not. I mean, there are a few companies that I have had some discussion with in terms of, you know, setting up different sensors to show exactly how someone is playing and so on. But the thing is this, I see that more as a tool for highly trained athletes and The average player, the average player out there, I think if they just work in terms of more of their own development and skill set, I think that would be an easier option. So I see the virtual part as something for people that have a lot of money or extremely high class athletes. But the average person out there, I don't see that quite yet. It may come in the future. But I think the average player out there could definitely benefit from just working on their own specific strokes and slowing things down. You know, tennis is a very, very interesting and dangerous sport because you have professional athletes that amateurs are comparing themselves to. Mm -hmm. So you have a 50-year-old man, as an example, playing tennis, and he can look at TV and say, wow, wow. You know, I see Federer and Nadal hitting a ball a specific way, and I'm 50. I should be able to do what they're doing. And the answer is actually no, because these are extremely fit and talented people that are doing things that are remarkable. And you have people who are would like to be able to do it, but really can't do it. Because, you know, we're working in offices, we don't have the fitness, we're not hitting balls six, seven hours a day, and you come out and you play tennis for an hour and you try to do these things, the risk of injury is really, really high. So you really have to be careful and do these little small micro workouts throughout the day in order for you to be able to do something even close to what these players do.
0: Yeah, no, I would imagine the level is just completely, you can't compare. And I I think that's,
3: it's And uh, one of the things that I joke around is, you know, you can sometimes, you know, you look at 67 year old people playing sports, you know, they're playing tennis and golf, you don't see six year old women out playing soccer, you see them playing tennis. So that, you know, so you, you, you see 24 year old girls playing soccer, but you don't see 50, 60 year old people playing soccer. And, you you know, and, and one of the things, you know, you see 50-year-old men wanting to do something that a 25-year-old person is doing. And if a 50-year-old man is playing basketball, you know, he's not trying to dunk. He's just trying to get the ball in the basket. <laughs> but you will have tennis players who would come and 50-year-old men and I need to do exactly what Nadal is doing. Ari. But you don't see someone saying, oh, yeah, you know, I want to go ahead and be like Michael Jordan, just jump up and dunk balls because you can't.
0: This pandemic has been an opportunity for us to really be like in a chrysalis where the system was broken and we were sort of this ugly caterpillar that, you know, that was actually poisonous. And we've gone into a chrysalis and this is our opportunity to break everything down, completely redesign it and come out with something beautiful. And that process is not easy. That process probably hurts a lot when you're breaking everything apart. And yet, if we have the right people that are in leadership, and we ha- we let people actually be, you know, let that beauty part come out, and also do it very consciously, be very aware. And I think that's one of the things that's really powerful about this Black Lives Matter piece is that it's making us as white people say, wow, I am fortunate. I recognize my own biases, which before... Yeah, I recognize them, but did I actually speak it and acknowledge it and say, look, I recognize that I am so fortunate because if I get pulled over, I'm not risking my life. You would think like you shouldn't have to say that, but we do have to say that. We do have to recognize that it is that broken and we have to speak these things and not just think them for them to actually be fixed. And I think that this is really an opportunity rather than, I think we'll all be fine in the end, but it's going to hurt for a while, is really what it comes down to, it, in yeah. th- at least in the way that I'm thinking. I think we're in for a long ride where it's going to hurt. But I think that if we really focus on fixing rather than just complaining about what's broken, we can come out with something amazing. and And I think your work is really doing some incredible efforts in that way, Can you talk a little bit about some of the stuff that you've done? Because you have some sort of tools, I guess, is the best way to describe it, that we can use to help heal, I guess, is the
4: best word that I can think of. One of the things I would say, Heidi, is as you're describing this moment we're in, which is sort of, you know, this horror of COVID, and the helplessness people feel because we don't have the vaccines yet, we don't, Know quite what's going to happen in the winter when it comes back. I mean, like there are so many unknowns, and there's a lot of fear, and the implications for society have obviously dramatically changed because of covid and and job loss. And so you know, you have fear. you now have monetary fear. you now have, i mean, environmental fear. I mean, like we could go through all of these things that are happening in real time simultaneously. It is a transformational moment mm-hmm. for us, not just to to say, look, there's a broken bridge and can we get it to run again? Or can I mean, sorry, fix it again so the cars can run on it? But rather to say, okay, the bridge is broken. But if we were going to build a new bridge, is that the same bridge we built? And actually we might not. And there are different materials we could use. And I'd love for people in societies to take this moment of horror and to take it and really work together collectively to think, How can we reboot things in a way that will fix the problems we knew that were going to come? And how can we repair things so that we don't see that weakness? There will always be problems in this world. It's not like you're going to take a magic wand and everything's going to be fine. But this connects to my issue of hate. You know, everybody looked the other way after 9-11 with regard to the ideology, because the thing that they wanted to see was that... We were going after the bad guys, go kill Osama bin Laden, get him out of the planet and everything will be fine. They give it um, a face. It turns, yeah. Mm-hmm. Turns out that military action is super important. Yes. I'm not advocating that there is no role for use of force in certain circumstances. However, it costs nothing life-wise, to work on soft power. It costs nothing to be creative and inspirational in the kinds of things that you're doing at the grassroots. And that's where the answer lies on this. The bad guys cannot have armies if they don't have recruits. And so my thing here is, let us go all in. Let us put everything we have in trying to make sure that we're protecting youth, and protecting the youth from hate, from the us versus them ideology. I would love to be able to tell you, Heidi, that let's have a universal effort so that the 75 and 85 year old person doesn't hate again. That would be great. That's not where I'm focused. I'm <laughs> focused on millennials and Generation Z. What can we be doing? Because the numbers are so big and they're obviously digital natives and there's far more. So you ask the important question. So what do you do? One is to explain to society in general, you know, how the bad guys recruit and what we need to do. So on the online and offline platforms, we've got to understand the systems that they deploy in order to get a hold of people. So that's an obvious. The things that actually work for a young person is not a one size fits all. So it's not if they only had songs that sang of peace, you know, everything would be great. Or if they only had a basketball player that said, be nice, everybody would be nice. It's a multi-sectoral, you know, landslide of counter narratives that are coming at these kids in ways. So for some kid, a hip hop artist is going to make a difference to them in terms of, of doing something. For another kid, it's going to be a very deep, analytical argument that's going to make a difference. It's a bunch of different things, but it has to be delivered by credible, peer friendly spokespeople. So when we look at what that might mean, it's not like, let me take you back to to 9-11, you know, and so we were talking about Al Qaeda. And we were talking about the fact that in fact, they were going after Muslims to build their armies. And so what many countries thought is that, boy, if we just got the guy with the longest beard and the highest hat who was super Muslim to tell all these young kids that violence in the name of Islam wasn't allowed, they wouldn't join this group, which is absurd because a 16-year-old kid is not listening to what an imam says. They're listening to what their friends say. So if you think about that, who are the most credible voices for young people? So we've got to blast the marketplace with those credible voices. Whether they're voices that we've ever heard of before or not, we've got to find out. So that's where cultural listening comes in. That's where we we get really nuanced about the form and the shape of things. And then the final thing I'll just say is across the board, what we find on the research side, this is true for neo-Nazis. This is true for ISIS-like organizations. The most credible voices are former extremists. They are people who used to walk the walk and don't walk it anymore. Mm-hmm. because they have something to say that no one else can say. Hey, I went to Syria. I experienced the hell of ISIS. I realized how ridiculous they were. I've come back. I wanted to tell you, don't fall for it. Or it's the former skinhead who says, hi, I was part of that movement for a very long time. Let me tell you why you don't want to join it. So what I see as an answer here, it's a long way of me saying, let's figure out at a nuanced community level who the credible voices are and scale them
0: you have women from all over the globe that are coming to gather that are bringing their different viewpoints they're different they're coming from different industries they're coming from different work environments and workspaces and some of them are a lot of them were sort of innovators in their own right and creating their own things and some people were just sort of in transition and trying to find their own space and where do i fit in this world but i need to have the women i need to have my women support in this place and I think what's what I'm curious is how has it been for you to watch this journey of how win has evolved because in the beginning it was sort of this core group of people that mostly you knew that would sort of gather them together, and then it sort of brings the friends of the friends and then it's the colleagues yeah. of the friends of the friends and the and being at the the center of that, you know how is it for you to have watched this journey
5: Oh yeah, thank you. I think it's been extremely an incredible growth and learning experience also for me so but it's been very helpful let's say I have also in some ways journals I have my meditation I'm going I've been doing this as an inner and outer journey in some ways if you see what I mean because as you said first it was the friends of the friends and suddenly you get or not suddenly but it happened so that we had huge multinational coming suddenly we had mega contracts we needed lawyers so it grew from A kitchen operation to an office with employees and bigger and bigger and bigger, and that means. And what what I can see is that I, you can actually do your same thing, growing, but you have to make sure you grow and learn things, and then okay, now I have to face and I have to, you know, uh, have other responsibilities because now it's a different crowd, and still to be strong inside, not to change too much also because. Queen has a specific proposal of giving value to the feminine and to role model the more feminine, even the masculine, authentic in the world. And I still believe that's very, very important. So i kept that. So for me to watch it has been that when we were not important, it was in some ways easy or was difficult in another way. But then as it grew, it got also difficult because then people had an opinion about it. So everybody wanted me, wanted to say something. They were praising, they were criticizing. So then you have to grow as a human to deal with all of that. And so that's my internal thing from the outside. It's been interesting to see also how it has changed now with women in the early years being almost embarrassed about attending something that had to do with women and talking to me with very low voice. to now it's the hot thing to do. And lots of young women are writing to me from universities. They want to have interns. They want to work with this hottest topic in them in, on the planet and so on and so forth. So it's very nice to see how we had to do a certain advocacy in the beginning, and now this is a bigger topic. We still don't have freedom of choice for everybody on the planet, so there is work to be done, and that work needs to be done in collaboration. So it's been interesting to see. It also, perhaps when this began more than 20 years ago, I had thought everything would happen a bit faster, and still, it's happening.
0: Yeah, but it, I mean, it, it has happened. I mean, if you think about it in the, the big picture, it's actually happened fairly quickly. It's just that it, you know, as you've been the, the center of that, I'm sure that it has felt like a, a lot much longer journey, but it has yeah. been amazing to watch. And I think, you know, those of us that have worked in the space and various aspects of it, whether it's connecting the the technology pieces or whether it's the event side, and it's been wonderful to, to see the momentum, particularly in the, you know, the recent times, because of, as you said, you know, when we're in crisis, we need that feminine side, we need, you know, people are realizing that those soft skills that were downplayed before are so critical for survival right now. And we need, you know, it's those things that people miss more than anything else. When I speak with my mother, who's, you know, she's turning 80 this year, And the one thing she really misses more than anything else is a hug. And it's just that, you know, it's those little things. She's like, everything else is taken care of. But I just, because I live by myself, I miss having that hug. And I think we all feel that. I mean, and that's just one example of the the bigger scale. It's like, we all don't know what the future has to hold, but we know that if we have our support system in place, we're going to be okay. And I think that that is where the feminine is really important and vital for us to get through whatever challenges come our way. And I so appreciate the work that you've done in that space. And so I have to ask you, because of course, we're in this space where everything is sort of has to be virtual for the moment. How is that impacting the ability to yep. connect women globally for you? And, mm-hmm. and what kinds of things do you see for the near future in order to keep that momentum and keep that, uh, uh, that connection? Yeah.
5: Yeah, this is now very, very interesting. And we had, like, we had planned a lot of things this spring. I was going to do a very big event in Singapore, actually, in May. And we had another diversity and inclusion thing also in earlier. So all of this had to be canceled and our big thing that we always do in September, uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. And then we started to do a few smaller webinars, seminar webinars, and tried also to experiment with them to make them interactive. And surprisingly well received and well experienced, and I felt that, yeah, even here we managed to get that energy alive, which is so important for this event that you feel included, not only you know cerebral, and the positive also was that there were people saying, "Okay, it's in the middle of the night now, I'm in Australia, but I can call in, and I wouldn't afford flying in, or it was too complicated, or someone else also woke up at six a m in in California saying, "I'm here too, you know." So I realized that with the online event, you can reach more people from around the globe without the hassle of flying or the finances. And at the same time, meeting live, is, you know, of course, gives an opportunity to give each other a hug and so on and so forth. So what we are experimenting with right now is, and we don't know what the world will look like even in the end of September where we have planned a meeting, uh, is to do a hybrid. So we will do online. And then we are encouraging people to meet in hubs and these hubs can even be in someone's houses. So let's say, Hey, if you want to meet with, you know, seven girlfriends or friends in your house watching the thing on a big screen, and then we can hear from different hubs too, or maybe there are 40 people meeting in London, or maybe we can meet again in September. We don't know how things will develop. So if this works out, then we can even reach more people than before. So we will try that model and then we will see. But sure, it hasn't been easy, it's been also very challenging because sponsors didn't know, people don't know financially, like, uh, how is this going? So I'm also experiencing this uncertainty, not only for my life, but also for the organization. And I must also say that and um, we've been blessed not having anyone in the family being sick. So it's also been a really time, therefore, to relax a little bit, to reset, to get in some new behavior, I realized, oh, I've worked far too much. I've been better now in exercising every day, doing my yoga, going for walks. And some of these will now continue. And it's also been a time to think about new ways of doing things, a new project. And then I really trust, and I think also part of the feminine that we have as women and men is also this intuition. And sometimes in times like this, when technology is developing fast there's lots of things going fast, and we can't really know about tomorrow, but we can trust and we can feel or sense of these things, you know. So alongside with data and the technology that you know so much about, Heidi, alongside with that, we also just need to follow our trust and our intuition of it, and and work on staying in the moment because and celebrate the moment, just like we do at and we celebrate each other and our achievements and who we are and what we do. And that is so important in this time to celebrate that every moment.
0: Thank you, Global Nomads, for joining us today. And I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you did and you haven't already, please make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any of the great upcoming episodes. And i always appreciate a rating and review. It helps others find us. And if you do, please let us know so we can share a little love back. It's been such a pleasure and an honor to be with you today. We look forward to next time. Bye-bye for now.